This episode is part two. Be sure to listen to part one before listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us today. In this episode, prior members will recount their experiences while inside the religious group I grew up in. If you would like to learn more, share your story, or become a sponsor, please visit us at coltonconnecticut.com. You are now listening to Colton Connecticut. So I would see my teenage friends go over to England, like for the summer. They go the whole summer or they would go over the entire Christmas break. And everybody always talked about it like it was this big privilege. Like, oh, they're going to get to go to England. This is amazing. God's doing amazing things over there. And they're going to be able to really serve God. And, and God has called them over to England. And how do you say no to that? How do you say no to the creator of the universe inviting you to another country? In my head, I was like, well, wow, God, this is pretty epic. Like God is calling them to go over to this other country. And you think, well, how does, does someone just say to you, okay, God's calling you, you have to go. There was a little bit of the, let's pray about it. So everybody be praying about whether or not they should go. And then someone would say, well, I really think it's on my heart. You know, I think you should go. And then the person being told they should go, there's kind of like a little war that goes on inside because even if you don't want to go, you know, you can't say no because it's God calling you. is putting it on someone's heart that you should go. And if you don't go, you're saying no to God. So it's almost like they make you think you have a choice, but you really don't. And so I would see some of my teenage friends we would go to their house. So the parents would be like, oh, so-and-so is going to England during Christmas break. And so we'd all get together before our friend left for England. But like everybody would get together and it was like this big send-off. And I thought that, well, they're coming back. Like, yeah, my friend's going on vacation, but they'll be back. So I don't know why we're always having these hangouts and get-togethers before they leave. And then my friend didn't come back after two weeks or say Christmas vacation be over and we'd be starting school again. And my friend didn't come back. My friend was still, quote, in England and God asked them to stay longer. So there were times that I had friends of mine that basically you would see them go to another country for months on end. And it was weird because it wasn't like I could just call them. We could write letters, but it was very hard to access your friends when they were over there. Because it wasn't going over to go on vacation. They were going over to serve God in someone's home. You know, Cyro got a chip in or a word in from God. So-and-so needs to go to England and help this other person in their home after being gone for months. And of course, I'm like, hey, what was it like? What did you do? Did you get to go to see Big Ben? I was very naive at the time. I was like, did you get to go? I thought that they were on a vacation. Like, yeah, they were going to go serve God, but of course they would see the rest of the country. And I had at least three friends when they came back said, oh no, no, I stayed in this person's house for three months straight and we cleaned. We cleaned their house, helped watch their kids or just clean and go to church. And it shocked me that they were gone for three months and that's what they did. And they looked so tired. They look pale and just really come back different, kind of like beaten down. 
And I was like, well, what was it like? And it was sometimes it was hard to really get answers of what their experience was because to a degree they couldn't talk about it. But a lot of them would just be like, well, we're just working for Jesus and a lot of hard work, a lot of late nights and getting up early. So part of me was terrified that I would get invited to England. So it was bittersweet. Like if you were invited, it's a privilege, but it's also really scary because you don't know when you're going to come back, basically. And you don't know what you're going to be asked to do. I heard a lot of friends talk about cleaning toilets and cleaning other people's uh, houses. That was a big theme. And the idea was, well, you're a humble servant and you're serving Jesus. If, if you're not at least willing to clean a toilet, how can God trust you with other bigger things in your life? Well, sometimes when we would be doing youth group at someone's house or doing those Sunday dinners, those lunches, especially if it was at a pastor's house, nine times out of 10, there would be a phone call. And the phone calls were always from England. And the pastor would have to, oh, oh they had to like, oh, I'll be back. I, I've got to go take this phone call. It's very important. And they would be on the phone for the next couple of hours. I would not see that person's dad for the rest of the time we were there. It was just like, where's your dad? Oh, they're still on the phone. But that would happen regularly. It got to the point when the phone rang. If I was at someone's house who was in the ministry, I would get like a pit in my stomach because I was like, oh, they're going to go like talk for like an hour. And it was always like very hushed. Like, oh, I got to, oh, this is an important call. It wasn't like, oh, hey, my friend so-and-so is calling me. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's great. No, they would go for these phone calls for hours and then they'd never talk about what this important phone call was about. So there was a lot of secrecy. In a way, it's appealing because you think, oh, maybe it's so important. They can't talk about it. And I would see people drop everything they were doing. If a phone call from England came, you had to stop what you're doing and take that call. I don't ever recall someone saying, oh, I can't talk to them right now. Tell them I'll call them back. I saw parents stop playing with their children immediately to go get the phone call. I saw people put down their fork in the middle of a meal and take the phone call and never come back to that plate. I saw people who were getting ready to go, say, to the movies with their family. Well, guess what? They can't go to the movies because they have to take the phone call. So that's the level of influence and power that these phone calls from England had. And I didn't always know who was online. But as I got older, you know, came to find, come to find out it was, it could be anybody from the ministry team in England. And a lot of times it was Gene Spademan calling. So I don't really know. I don't know the details of what those phone calls were about, but I didn't ever see anybody uh, coming off those phone calls, terribly excited and happy and relieved. It, it was always very serious and dramatic. They talked about the three most dangerous times in a Christian's life are when you get married, when you buy a house, and when you have a baby. And they meant like those were the most dangerous, like because you could get your eyes off of Jesus and stop following God and put your family first or put your house first or put your kids first. So it was very ingrained in me in the beginning that, you know, if I ever did get married, I'd have to be really careful who I picked. It'd have to be somebody that would fall in line and would keep their eyes on Jesus. So like our lives wouldn't become a whole mess. And um, I'm very, 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 very fortunate. I met my husband, the man I'm married to now, before I joined the church. And we had been friends for quite a few years before I became a member of the church. So 
we had already established a really good friendship. We had great chemistry as friends. And then once I was in the group, you know, we were still friends, but there was no uh, romantic feelings. And then fast forward a few years later, and we end up falling in love with each other. And I'm realizing he needs to keep going to this church or be part of this group or we can't be together. And I remember I told him that. I basically said, you, you know, this is where I'm staying. This is the group of people that God's called me to be with. And if you want to be with me, you, you have to become part of this. And he's just an amazing human. He was just like, sure, okay. He was just incredible. He didn't get dragged in hook, line, and sinker like I was, but he loved me and wanted to be with me. So he kind of hung out in the background and kind of did and said everything that was right to do and say. And at one point, I'll never forget. So I just fall in love with him. And new love is very exciting. You know, it's you just want to be with that person all the time. You want to be next to them. You want to kiss them all the time. And I remember I was at a youth group and Lionel was at his house. And we were hanging out at youth group. And I'm sitting there with this group of people. I thought, oh, I'd rather be with Lionel. I'd rather see what he's doing. I want to go see how his day was. So I told everybody, it's like, yeah, I got to get going. I'm going to go see Lionel. I haven't seen him in a while. You know, I'm, I'm out. And I left youth group early. I went and I hung out with my boyfriend. And it was great. I got to visit with him and catch up with him. And pretty much the next day, I was pulled aside and told that everybody that was at the youth group after I left was worried about me. They were all worried that I was putting my relationship with Lionel before God because I decided to leave youth group early to go be with him. So I had to apologize for that. And when you apologize, it's not like you say you're sorry and I won't do it again. It's like you have to like cry, ugly cry and pray and pray to God with someone else how sorry you are that you did that. And then you had to be sorry for like two weeks or something. You got you to like be sorry, visibly sorry and recommitted to the group, recommitted to God. And then they're like, okay, good. At least you're back on track. And the sad thing is, I stopped going to see Lionel as much as I could. If I wanted to see him, it would have to be like after youth group. So I spent a lot of late nights hanging out with Lionel because I would go to youth group. And then when youth group was over, I would go see him. But I didn't want anybody to know I had to go see him because I was afraid of what everybody would say. You know, like if they saw my car at his house, that was that too. If, if somebody saw your car somewhere where they thought you shouldn't be, you would be told you shouldn't be there or we're worried about you and so controlling and so unhealthy. Thankfully, you know, he's an amazing person. We got married in the church and there's a whole other story behind the beginning of our marriage, but we ended up having two kids, amazing, beautiful kids. Um, our first son though, when I was pregnant, I was friends with somebody who was working in Jean Spademan's house, somebody who was basically her just working in her home, cleaning, being like a health aide because she was, her health was ailing and she was bedridden quite a bit. Um, but I would talk with this friend back and forth all the time during my pregnancy. We were really good friends. And so I'd keep them updated on how my pregnancy was going. And then Jean found out and wanted to know more about it. She was excited. Jean was excited to hear about, 
I think to somebody who was going to be having a baby. And Jean didn't really know me, but I think the friend that I had was an amazing friend and they just had nothing but good things to say about me. And I think they painted a picture of me of this nice young pregnant wife who just loves God and is trying to do everything God wants them to do and they're expecting their first baby. So, and it sounds like a very charming way to present somebody. I'm only assuming that's how it went because I tend to think that that's the narrative that my friend gave to Jean because Jean would ask about me. She'd ask about the pregnancy. She'd ask about the baby and sounded like she was excited to meet me and meet the baby one day. And at one point in my first pregnancy, we had a little bit of a health situation and we didn't know if our son would be healthy when he was born or if not. And we hadn't quite named him yet. And I kind of already knew what I wanted to name him. But my husband and I had a hard time agreeing on a name. And we got a phone call from England. I think it was like on a Sunday night. And Jean was in the background. And one of my friends who was there was basically speaking for her. I don't know why she wouldn't get on the phone. Like she didn't just get on the phone and talk to me. She spoke through this friend and I could hear Jean in the background. And basically they, she said, my friend had said that Cyro keeps hearing a name for your baby. And if you want, you can know what that name is, but you can never ever tell anyone that Cyro gave you God's name for your baby. You can't let anybody know. And at the time I trusted my friend and I really thought, you know, I was in a very vulnerable state. I didn't know what my baby's health would be once they came, uh, once they were born. I didn't know. I was going for a test in a couple of days and that test was going to let us know basically what his brain activity was. <laughs> like there were problems with the ventricles in his brain. And so we were very concerned. We didn't know what level of care he would need or if he would even survive. And so I have a friend who's telling me that God knows my son's name and wants to give me a special name for my son. And I clung to that. I really was like, yeah, I would love, I want to know that. I don't know if my baby's going to make it, but I felt that there would be so much comfort in knowing the God of the universe knows my son's name and cares. So I remember Cyro said, if it's a boy, his name should be Jonathan. I keep hearing the name Jonathan David, Jonathan David. I keep hearing this name. So I think that's what God would name him if it's a boy. And part of me was like, well, what do you mean if it's a boy? Like if it's God, like he knows if it's a boy. And you're like, I don't know. But what I, was, I was like, well, I'm just being nitpicky. And honestly, when I wrote down the name, my heart sank like a rock. I hated that name. That was so not the kind of name I would ever pick for my kids, ever. I would pick a name that was, I wanted to name a Rocco or um, Titus or Asher or something cool, kind of funky trend, you know, like a, not a very common name. So when Cyro said Jonathan David, I was very disappointed. <laughs> I was like, uh, that's a very common, boring name. But, you know, this is God. God is saying this. So I made excuses. I was like, well, I guess God knows that I hate this name. So that's why he's challenging me with this name. And then Cyro said, well, Jonathan means gift from God. and David means beloved. 
So I was like, okay, that's really sweet. A beloved gift from God. Everything will be okay. Like whenever we go to this test, we know our son's name, it'll be fine. I told my husband, and that was kind of hard to break it down because he was very skeptical usually, but he knew how to go with the flow enough to not cause any problems. I didn't know how he would take it. But I think he was feeling vulnerable too. And he said, okay, well, God gave us the name Jonathan David. That's what we'll name him. I was like, yeah, but I hate the name John. So we we looked up uh, nicknames for the name Jonathan and the nickname Jack had come up and it worked out because I liked the name Jack. Jack was actually on my short list for names, but we didn't feel like Jack was like a proper long enough name. So we compromised. So once when my son was born, we named him Jonathan David. And now I love him and it's a very unique name right now. I think he's the only Jonathan in his grade. But I just had to come with the realization like a few days ago that like I let some lady name my kid. I would have liked to have his middle name been Barrett after my grandfather. You know, I would have liked to give him more of a family name, but he he's proud of his name. He loves it. It's fine. We've even had the conversation. If he ever wanted to change his name, he could. So that was when my son was born. And a couple of years later, we had our daughter. And how we ended up getting out was my kids were, I think, five and seven at the time. My son had undiagnosed um, Asperger syndrome, autism disorder. And I was struggling very much so with mothering him without any support from anybody. People thought he was just naughty and crazy and wild. I mean, a lot of people loved him, but I was once told to spank the foolishness out of him. Thankfully, I did not do that. (laughs) But one of the ways we got out is they started implementing this thing called cell groups and the cellular model vision of 12. And what it basically ended up being was like a a multi-level marketing for churches. And they, we would have these cell groups at our house. And so we went from having like four four nights, three or four nights a week of church, church events to every night during the week. The only day we had off was Monday. Mondays were my favorite days of the week because those were the only days that nobody called me, nobody texted, nobody emailed, and I didn't have to be anywhere or do anything. I could just be home with my kids. We did that for like six months. We did every day of the week, except for Mondays, having people over to our house, getting together at meetings, Emailing, texting, phone calling, prayer meetings, church events, church get-togethers, services for six months from September till March. And quite frankly, trying to keep up that degree of, of going and going and going. And this is constant phone calls because we were trying to grow the church and get people to come in and run these little home cell groups on top of going to Sunday morning, Sunday night services, midweek services, prayer services, and then school for leaders. That's the MLM part. The multi-level marketing is school for leaders. So you go to this school that they didn't tell us it was going to be like 12 weeks long of over an hour uh, at the church going through like scripture and learning it and also that you can get disciples under you. So you get 12 people under you and then they get 12 people and then they get 12 people. And I was told I was responsible for the 12 ladies that were under me. I was their discipler. They made up a word. 
And I had a discipler who I was a part. So that's how it was like a multi-level marketing situation. And they would keep track of how many people you invited to your cell group, how many people uh, gave their lives to God or got saved or recommitted. And you had to, at the end of the night, report back in an email how many people recommitted their lives, how many people got saved, how many people were new in your group. Then the rest of the week would be busy calling people, inviting them to the cell group. It was a big deal. They make your cell group grow. If you don't make the cell group grow, then there's something very wrong with you. You know, you're not trusting God or whatever. And mind you, at the time, I had a kindergartner and a second grader, little kids who needed me. And I remember before we started the cell group stuff, I said to myself, if at any point in time, my daughter feels like I'm spending more time with my disciples, these 12 girls I'm supposed to be responsible for, I need to stop. Because the thing is, you you have these 12 disciples under you and you're responsible for their walk with God too. So you have to get together with them during the week, check in on them, make sure they're growing, make sure that they're bringing people in. And so I was... Not, I wasn't able to spend the kind of time I wanted to spend with my kids. And about six months in, my daughter uh, at the time was five. And she said, Mommy, why do you always spend time with them? I miss you. You don't spend time with me. And that broke my heart, you know. And and on Thursday nights, my kids were out at children's cell group until 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night on a Thursday. So I'd have to pick them up after we had cell group at our house. You know, I'd bring everybody home and then I'd go get my own children. And we did that for six months. And thankfully, Lionel and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, what are we doing? What are we, what is this? We have no freedom. We have nothing. And so thankfully, you know, we did a praying and fasting and um, Lionel remembered that we knew someone called um, Michael Ferris. He's a fantastic guy. He does a uh, visual... Uh, adaptation of a journey to the potter's house from the Old Testament, where he actually like makes pottery. And any during the pottery that he's making, he kind of just describes how God loves us and created us, and it's really beautiful. I don't really believe in that stuff anymore, but I still appreciate the art and the time that he puts into it. And Lionel's like, I remember Michael Ferris. Who was the name of the potter? I was like Michael Ferris. So we he emailed this guy that we met a couple years ago randomly. But he remembered Michael because he was very kind and very patient. And Lionel's like, I'm not used to this kindness and patience for another Christian. This is remarkable and kind of interesting. And we remembered we had his business card. And on his business card, he's a licensed family therapist and has a degree in psychology. So Lionel's like, I don't know if what we're doing is right or if this is crazy or if we're crazy. So we decided to contact Michael Ferris and say, hey, are we crazy or is this normal? He may email Michael and within 15 minutes, he's like, yeah, I'll meet with you. Let's get together. And I was shocked that he responded right away. And we met with him. But the, the worst part was when we met with him, I was a mess in the parking lot. I was shaking. I was crying because if anybody from the church knew we were meeting with someone outside of the church like that without telling anybody, we would be in serious trouble. We met with Michael and we sat down at this restaurant, this poor guy. I'm like crying and shaking, looking around, making sure nobody knows us. 
And he's like, this core man doesn't even know us. He's like, I just want you two to know, I don't know you, but this is a safe space. Like you guys are safe here. I will make sure you're safe. What can I do to help? And we talked with him for two or three hours, kind of explaining the group we were a part of and what we were doing. And we're like, are we crazy? Is, should we be doing this? And he was very, very patient and gracious. He said, you know, I don't like to use the word cult, but I'm going to say I'm seeing a lot of red flags. And I don't think it's healthy for you to go back to this group of people. We didn't tell him what group we were part of. We didn't tell him who our pastors were. We left names out of it because we didn't want to say anything bad about anybody. You know, we really wanted to still portray everybody in a good light. So he didn't even know where we were from, but he just gave the best advice to us. He said, don't ever go back. And we're like, yeah, but if we leave, they're going to want to have a meeting with us. They're going to want to talk with us. And he's like, you don't have to do that. You're adults. You don't want to talk to anybody you don't want to talk to. And that was a novel idea for us. So basically with his help and encouragement and support, we were able to say, hey, you know what? We're not doing this anymore. We can't do this. Thank you so much. We're done. Uh, I emailed my discipler, Lionel, went over to Sam Weberly's house. I was his discipler. And he told him, he's like, I'm done. And Sam was like, did anybody influence you to make this decision? And Lionel's like, no. (laughs) Sam was like, well, don't tell anybody that you're not doing this anymore. Let us pray about it and we'll let you know. It felt like a divorce. It was a nightmare. I was a mess because I knew and I understood once we got out, I would lose everybody. I would lose all my contacts. People would shun me because I've seen it before. I saw when people left, they were shunned. People stopped talking to them. They treated them like they were doing the wrong thing. So I knew that would happen to me. And these were people that I had from the time of 16 to the age of 32, they had been my family. Like I forsook hanging out with my own family to be with this group of people. So yeah, we got out and thankfully we were able to start going to therapy, get our son treatment. He's doing great. And five years being out, it's been really good. That summer that we were out was a lot of tears. The amount of shunning and social isolation was tremendous. And the impact it had was extremely painful. Thank you for listening to Colton, Connecticut, as I explore, investigate, and learn more about the religious group I grew up in, located in Norwich, Connecticut, and Mansfield Woodhouse, England, formerly known as Dayspring, King's Chapel, Bethel, Peniel, and the International Church. <laughs>